podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Before you hear the next great podcast, we'd like to tell you about a new 90-second show which distills everything that President Donald Trump has said in the last 24 hours. You're going to lose a number of people to the flu. It's called What Has He Said Now? and is available at wherever you get this podcast. Uh, death totals, our numbers per million people are really uh, very, very strong. We're, we're very proud of the job we've done. Look for a link in this here podcast description or search for What Has He Said Now? in all the usual places. Okay, so uh, welcome, guys. Uh, we're in quarantine week eight, nine, whatever. Groundhog pod. Uh, but luckily I'm joined by, uh, well, they've got nothing better to do, so I've cornered them again. Uh, we've got uh, John Bruin and Gareth Dobson to join us to talk about Brits abroad, players that have gone, uh, touching on managers across Spain, across Italy, uh, various other bits and bobs, which I'm sure will be of interest um, if you've got nothing better to do. Uh, tune in to the end, and, and I'm sure we'll be back next week with some more of the same. Cheers, guys. Okay, so welcome to the Whistleblowers. We are back again. Um, I think we're on quarantine, maybe six on this, but uh, our guests have been in quarantine a little bit longer than that. John Bruin, what's your uh, what's your tally count on the wall at the minute? Uh, from well, tomorrow evening, that's Wednesday evening, it'll be eight weeks. Eight weeks of solitary confinement. Wow, that's the price you pay for going to Cheltenham Festival, John. That's 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 what it is. That's true. That's true. Um, in two days as well. Uh, yeah, I survived that. I think. Let's hope I survived the rest of it. There you go. Yeah. There's positive for talking for you. Uh, uh, yeah, well, well, we're all rooting for you, and um, we hope you do too. Uh, our other guest there, uh, welcome back um, to Mr. Gareth Dobson. What's the tally for you, mate? Uh, I think I hit nine weeks on Thursday. So you know, it, feel, it feels like a good innings. If I was. I feel like I'm I'm an opening batsman at this point. More of a more of a night watchman that's just just obdurate night watchman. Hung around too long. Go, yeah. Do we get moved up the order after this, um, gentlemen? It's great to have you back. I've really enjoyed the last few weeks where we've we've gone into a slightly more cultural look at music and films. Uh, last week was documentaries, which was a, a good one. If anyone hasn't heard it, to go back and listen to. Um, keeping on that theme of. Just I suppose looking at um, looking at trends in football throughout the eighties and nineties, um, moving into the Brits abroad section. So like players that have gone abroad, maybe maybe some managers. I'm, I don't know if we'll get that far here, but it was a incredibly interesting time. The first thing I'd probably want to say to you both is when players moved abroad, particularly in my childhood, it was always seen as like a real mark uh, of credibility, of like prestige, uh, you know, you were the best player to go abroad. Um, Do you think that was the case, John? I mean, because I I look at it and go, you look at some of these players that would go to places that were isolated, that weren't necessarily their style of play, but it was a real, it was a real mark of quality if you went to Europe, wasn't it? It, Yeah, it was, it was. um, I mean, players went at at slightly different junctures. So, uh, Graham Soonis and Trevor Francis uh, joined up at Sampdoria uh, and, and they played actually um, with uh, two young players in Gianluca Viali and Roberto Mancini before Sampdoria actually became the best team in Italy. But they pretty much went for the money. Graham Soonis has, has uh, admitted that openly. Uh, prior to that, um, Kevin Keegan um, left Liverpool in 1977 after winning the European Cup. For Hamburg, and again, you know, he was fairly uh, bold in his uh, ambitions there, which was it was very high tax uh, back back in back in Britain at the time, and uh, he just um, felt he had to get out of the country for that reason, and uh, he was very successful there. Now, it, it was a, uh, and, and of course, you've also got to add in um, uh, the state of English football uh, from the mid eighties onwards, which was depressed due to. Uh, hooliganism and the post high school ban, um, and it actually got to the point actually where you could uh, also count playing abroad as going up to Scotland, where uh, Rangers, of course, 
uh, took a great, a, quite, a, quite a significant uh, proportion of uh, English players, uh, such that the Italia 90 squad, the club with the most players, was indeed Rangers. No. So, yeah, that's absolutely right. So, um, it was a time when, uh, and, and look at it in a cultural aspect, um, you know, Britain had joined the common market, or you know, in the 1970s, and was looking a bit further afield. It's also sort of the era of Alfie, the same pet, and that type of thing. We were asserting ourselves on the European stage, still a bit uncomfortable with it, uh, and uh, that discomfort eventually uh, <laughs> reared its ugly head 30 or, 30 or so years later. But um, yeah, it was an interesting time, and yeah, a lot of the times it was good players because good players could earn good money um, and it, you would say of those players that went uh, most of them would say it was a really enriching experience though um, there were obviously some uh, players who really missed the mark uh, over in Europe Well this is it Gareth uh, just bringing you in on that I suppose that there's a lot of activity around your uh, your, your club Spurs with various players going in and out and around yeah kind of, you know, big transfers. But uh, how did you see it when you when you were younger, watching watching your favourite players go abroad? Was it a kind of like, it's, it's, it's a strange farewell, isn't it? Because you're almost happy that you've got players that good that can go. Uh, because you're, cause essentially English football was always not seen as good as theirs. Yeah, and it was, for me as a uh, Spurs fan, I so my first real kind of uh, interaction with uh, fanhood was the... Uh, you know, 1986-87 uh, FA Cup final with uh, Spurs and Coventry. And essentially, immediately after that, you know, uh, stars from the team started disappearing. Um, the flips, you know, with, with, with Huddle and... Had, uh, had Huddle left by 86? Was he straight out there? No, no, Huddle's final game was that, that game, actually. Yes. And then yeah. Waddle two years later. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when you're, you know, when you're a young man who... Yeah, you got to watch two games of football on TV a year. Um, these players essentially just disappeared. You know, they you may have occasionally you know, read a snippet in a thing and you'd see them on international duty, but you know, for a, a football fan in the mid eighties, it was like they just you know left yeah. and they became this kind of mythological sort of you know wandering figures. I mean, the flip side of that is that Spurs also benefited because in you know, just before World Cup 19 in 1989, we signed uh, Gary Lineker uh, from Barcelona. So it, it, it does it does work both ways. But yeah, I, I remember being in, you know, being quite in awe because it's, it seems so glamorous and, you know, and, well, continental to to use the uh, the phrase that, you know, Hoddle then Waddle went. It also felt quite fitting because, um, you know, I think Spurs saw themselves as a, a team of some, you know, classy players who could do it on the continent. Um, and I guess you know you could almost say it was bookended because you know Spurs uh, in the start of the 80s brought in Ardiles and uh, Ricky Villa, which was you know rare of players of their level to come in. So yeah, quite a prominently featuring club in that decade for European manoeuvres. Yeah, let's we'll, we'll come back onto that. There's a couple of cracking names that that, that, that threw up. Um, just coming back to you, John, on the you made a, a great point that the influence of that ban after highs or the five year ban for all English teams in Europe and kind of the activity that went around that, perhaps inspired or perhaps forced by that, I should say. So you look at um, Steve Archibald who moved. I, I think Spurs just won the Cup. Was it, was it the Cup Winners' Cup? Well, they won the UEFA Cup and I think that Sorry, would, have, would have been Steve Archibald's final game, yeah, for Spurs. Um, and then, yeah, he got that move to Barcelona and, uh, of course... Uh, he got the unenviable task of uh, replacing Diego Maradona. That's uh, that's brilliant. I couldn't. But when I was just looking at some of the <laughs> looking at some of the timings for these things before, and um, and when you say that, and that that who who dare take the number ten jersey at Barcelona? I mean, admittedly, I don't think Maradona was at his best in um, Catalonia, was he? No, no. Uh, I, I think as time's gone on, we've realised that the the personal issues that Maradona developed were, were fully in, in the swing of things by when he was in Barcelona. He really didn't fit at that club. Um, and yeah, it was, it was Terry Venables, of course, that, uh, that took him to, 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 took Steve Archibald over there. 
uh, a player that um, the Spanish had not really heard of. Obviously, they'd seen him play in European football. Um, but a player who, uh, you know, it is said uh, in, in Barcelona now, doesn't, even though he looks very different these days to how he did when he had that blonde mane, uh, doesn't have to buy a drink for himself in Barcelona because they won their first title uh, in the in the 84-85 season uh, with Archibald, one of the star men. And that had been the first title uh, since Johan Cruyff uh, won it in 1974. So that they had been... He ended a, a, a real drought for the club and uh, they got to the European Cup final the following year uh, under Terry Venables. So... Um, and it was at that point, actually, that Barcelona... And, and one of the things about English players, and uh, this actually went for players of all nationalities, there's a certain point where certain player, certain nationality of player w- was fashionable. So you had the Dutch in the 80s and uh, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, I remember Inter Milan had three Germans at one time. In that sort of early uh, football Italia era on, on Channel 4, there was, there was a bit of a trend for Russians... But um, players from the English league, uh, that's that's the direction that um, Terry Venables went in. And in that summer of 1986, he took um, two of the best players uh, from English football. I mean, Mark Hughes was a young player, uh, but already was carved into the Mark Hughes that we would know for the next 15, 20 years. You know, a very strong player, um, the master of the volley. Um, and then you had Gary Lineker, who had been... Uh, Gary Lineker was a little bit older than Mark Hughes, uh, a bit more worldly. Uh, you know, he speaks Spanish to this day, doesn't he? He's conducted mm. a couple of interviews in Spanish, including one with Maradona. Um, Mark Hughes uh, was a guy from uh, a, from North Wales. Um, and we've seen, actually, during his career, actually, as a manager... He's not really the biggest mixer. He's normally moved to clubs with the same group of people, Mark Bowen, Eddie Nigveski. He always likes the same people around him. In Barcelona, that wasn't really open to him. It didn't work out for him there. He, One of the stories about him was that he was uh, eating corned beef out of a can, was one uh, anecdote I heard about him. Uh, and, uh, and that actually brings me to, to another player who was a bit of a misfit, who was just as good a player as, as either of them. Um, Gary Lineker and uh, Mark Hughes, and that's Ian Rush, of course. Uh, now, Ian Rush's famous quote were, it is, was something along the lines of, it was like playing in another country <laughs> when, he, when he played for... Now, something that he's... Ian Rush is, is, is actually a, a very, very nice chap to talk to, uh, and Ian Rush has always denied that that's what he'd said, and it was Kenny Dalglish that had made this up to, to wind everybody up. But anyway... Um, but the story I heard about Ian Rush uh, is that he went uh, to Turin. Now, uh, I've been to Turin. It's a, it's a fairly, it's a working city. It's not big on you know nightlife and stuff like that. But Ian Rush was there on his own, living in a hotel. Um, and I read an interview with uh, somebody who I think was helping out there, uh, an English lady who spoke Italian and I think was married to an English guy. And she said that, Ian Rush was at his happiest when his brothers came over from uh, from North Wales again, and uh, rather than them come and stay in his you know mansion or whatever that he'd moved into, uh, he went and stayed in his brothers' bedrooms in like a small hotel because he'd grown up in his little house in North Wales, staying in the same bedroom as three or four brothers, and he felt most comfortable there rather than on his own in isolation. So we have to forget. We have to remember, of course, that there was no internet, there's no Skype, there's no Zoom, none of that. It was actually quite isolating for, for young players to go out there. And unless you were somebody like Gary Lineker, who I think is uh, someone with a bit more wherewithal and also um, perhaps a bit, you know, perhaps a, a little, uh, yeah, he's a little more worldly than they were as young men. Um, it, it could be very difficult. Well, I was just going to bring us on to a story, which probably is a nice nice time to bring it in there. John Aldridge, his spell at uh, Real Sociedad. Yeah. And, well, I mean, I know we're talking, we can come back to the Barca ones, just because it seemed a, a perfect time, because obviously he couldn't get in the side at Liverpool, because because as Rush, I think it was Rush actually returning from Juventus that forced him out 
Is that yes, correct? that's yes, that's right. I mean, John Aldridge was uh, a very good player for Liverpool oh. in eighty-seven, eighty-eight. But I have a feeling that Ian Rush returned. Yeah, Ian Rush returned in the summer of eighty-eight. So yeah, uh, I mean, the joke always was, wasn't they, that uh, basically in Aldridge they signed a player who actually looked like Ian Rush because they both had moustaches <laughs> at the time. Uh, but yeah, Rushy was uh, Kenny Dalglish's mate, and uh, with the greatest respect to John Aldridge, who scored a ludicrous amount of goals, uh, a much better player. Well, I, I, yeah, I was going to say, so him going over there, I, I think he was kind of a bit miffed. Also, no one else came in for him. I think Sociedad were the only team, which was even more kind of even more of a snub for him. Which so he, he had a point to prove, but he he picked out of all the places he could go is a Basque country in Spain where they do not sign foreign players or the policy was for them not to sign foreign players. I think at the time, because um, uh, a, f- a friend did a, a, a documentary on, on this this return and told me this story and I was just incredible hearing about it. And um, just the, the fact that he, I suppose, Athletic Club uh, Bilbao um, had had all the money, had the youth set up, so they were they absorbing all the local players. The other the other teams weren't getting close to them, um, and particularly Sociedad. And so Sociedad were just starved the players, and the policy of not signing foreign players was just causing them a lot of problems. They didn't want to sign more Spanish players because they just had obviously a real aversion and a real um, a friction with with the rest of Spain. So I'm sure they probably had a few of them there. But in terms of the actual policy, when they brought Aldridge over, because I thought Toshak signed him, but he didn't. Uh, Toshak ended up coming in as manager when uh, Aldridge handed in his transfer. But he signed a three-year contract in his first two seasons. I think overall, I think he scored like 40 goals in 75 games, but also like the importance of those goals. And then when he went there, like we don't like foreigners. They'd had like in... Um, written on the in the training ground walls, but in like kind of graffiti, and him overcoming that challenge, um, and for particularly for someone that probably I think he embraced the culture. I think there's probably going to be a recurring theme of this: the players that succeeded and and settled best were the ones that embraced it and wanted to speak the language and and wanted to be a part of it. And um, I think he. I think they beat Barcelona in the new camp. Uh, the last time they beat Barcelona in the new camp was probably with was John Aldridge's because that was that's how that's how much of an impact he had. Um, and and I think him moving back, people say it was because he didn't settle, and I think it was more to do with his family not settling. Um, and obviously he returned and and was a great player back here, but just just that um, being able to go to somewhere that's so difficult and perhaps hostile uh, initially and then prove your prove your uh, worth. I always find that that's kind of a real great, it's, it's the story that we want from some of these players and it, uh, it didn't happen for all of them. And I'd also throw in with, with Aldridge, I think that famous uh, spat on the touchline in World Cup 94 shows that he was never a uh, retiring wild, <laughs> was he? No, no, Absolutely not. I, I was going to say that, uh, you know, okay, uh, the Basque country at the time was, uh, well, it's, you know, it, it, is, uh, it keeps itself separate by, by its very nature. But, um, you know, San Sebastian is a lovely place. Uh, I don't know if either of you two chaps no, have been. been. No. Um, and uh, I can imagine for somebody like John Aldridge, who it's fair to say uh, likes a night out, it's it's just the place. I mean, it's, it, its culture is, uh, you know, bars and food and re- very relaxing culture there. Um, and John Toshak, obviously, he'd won the title with uh, Sociedad um, uh, as well. He, he took to it as well. I, I actually went on a stag do to San Sebastian, which you're not supposed to do because it's a bit too genteel for that. And uh, I'm not sure if it's actually true, but we Airbnb'd this place and uh, we ended up staying uh, somewhere which someone told us was the former residence of John Toshak, looking out, out over the bay. Um, oh. uh, and uh, yeah, it was a beautiful place. There was, you know, ten of us in there, uh, but we lost our deposit because somebody pulled the door off. But that, that's, uh, <laughs> and he won't admit it to this day. But we all know who it was. <laughs> well, we'll name and shame in some capacity, I'm sure. Uh, um, Gareth, uh, in terms of these, sorry, I feel like uh, me and John have gone on there. Have you earmarked any? Is there anyone within that um, that you've earmarked for for um, review? Um, a couple, I, I you know, with my my Spurs uh, 
followings, I, I, I spent a bit of time looking at uh, how things went for Gary Lineker. And I, I think he's probably, as we've touched on, regarded as one of the most successful uh, moves of that period. You know, he, on, on the debut of his uh, uh, El Clasico, he scored a hat-trick. Uh, they won 3-2. I think it was the first time they had beaten Real Madrid for quite some time. Um, he scored the winner in the, the Clasico three times, uh, which obviously is going to put you in, in hero status. And he, you know, under under Venables, they won the, the Copa del Rey. The, uh, uh, actually, they won the Cup Winners' Cup under uh, Cruyff when he returned as manager and replaced um, Cherry Venables. But he did very well. And obviously, you know, he makes a point where, you know, he did took Spanish lessons three days a week. He felt that, you know, learning the language and assimilating was the most important thing he could do. And, yeah, it obviously speaks to him as this, you know, sort of erudite and, like you said, slightly more worldly character. And I think also important, he kind of does put him in the context of quite how good a footballer he was. I think he's seen as, you know, very much that quintessential poacher. And a lot of the time, I think his career highlights, uh, we view them purely through the prism of, you know, five or six England World Cup games, which are fantastic and obviously amazing in the highlight of most of his career. But, you know, his his body of work, if you will, to use a music term, you know, over his career is is pretty phenomenal. Mm. Yeah, he was, he was a, 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 a... Gary Luka was a fantastic player. Um, strangely, I, I would struggle to see how he would fit in the modern game mm. uh, because he's not... He, he he was someone that got on the end of things, um, and you know that type of player sort of went out of the game probably about the time. Uh, actually, the last player that I remember being like that. Uh, I mean, the, the, you still get them like a, you get you know, Chicharito, Hernandez, or Raúl at Real Madrid. Jamie Vardy. Yeah, well, yeah, but even Jamie Vardy has to work very hard. Or, or actually, actually, probably right. Actually, these days, Gareth he has to play a bit like the Linux of role. Like, Brendan Rodgers has, has, has honed him into just being the finisher. But Jamie Vardy's success became in the guy leading the press from the front. In fact, being a one-man yes. press. But, yeah, uh, Gary Lineker, um, he... I mean, I remember, actually, you, you mentioned that he played under Johan Cruyff. Uh, Cruyff uh, decided that he was... Because Gary Lineker was actually very quick, that he would play him as a right-winger in yeah. the team. And that, that didn't really work because... Uh, I, I think oh, Lineker is quite self-evasive about that. He would admit that he didn't really have the skill to beat a man or wasn't a great crosser of the ball. But, um, yeah, I mean, you, you're quite right. Um, I mean, even even when he was a Leicester player, I mean, especially when he was a Leicester player, when he was a Leicester player, then he went to Everton, he went to Barcelona and then on to Spurs. Uh, every a fan of all, fans of all of those clubs would say what a fantastic player Gary Lineker was. And as you say... It's it's overshadowed by the fact of who he is. He's Gary Lineker, you know, the face of football and also World Cup legend. But yeah, uh, that stint in Barcelona shouldn't be forgotten. And uh, uh, so obviously one of his teammates uh, for a short period was was Mark Hughes, who, you know, we, we've mentioned it, it didn't go so well. Um, he then had, interesting, you know, he had a loan period at Bayern Munich uh, while he was on the books at, uh, at Barcelona and you know again I don't think that went particularly well but I was doing a, a football quiz as we all want to do at the moment uh, last week and he was a subject of one of the best pub quiz questions I've ever heard which was um, uh, what uh, oh no sorry it, actually no sorry it was on the, it was on a podcast I listened to sorry but essentially the, the question was um, what do these games have in common, which was uh, Mark Hughes played for Bayern Munich against, I think, Werder Bremen, and he played for Wales against, I think it may have been Russia. And what was the common thread between those two games? Was it, are they on the same day? Is that right? Exactly right. Oh, yeah. wow. Incredible, incredible. And I need to go and actually find out the details behind that. Yeah. That's when men were men, you see. Yeah. <laughs> travel was no issue talking of which uh, just to finish off the Barcelona side of things I um, when I was at Argyle one of the 
when Paul's Sturrock took over and then he really didn't fancy me as a striker. And then I was having this chat with my dad and I was like, how can I, how can I try and get Paul Sturrock on side? Dad was uh, like, obviously he was like, well, we, he had all these old Scottish Cup final games on video, so watching them, but he also had a couple of the European ones and we had the, basically Sturrock running the show in the new camp against Barcelona, which is this, you know, obviously it had, they had Hughes and Lineker up front in that game. It was Venables. Beat them home and away. And I admittedly, Scottish football was not, you know, Archibald had gone there, had played under, you know, won the league under with Ferguson, uh, Alex Ferguson, and a, a young Alex Ferguson at Aberdeen, come down to Spurs, won the European Cup with it, well, won a European Cup with them, UEFA Cup, and then gone. So, I mean, there was pedigree in Scottish football, but for for me to have this thing, and a couple of the lads that he signed from Dundee United just came down, and I was like, uh, I was like, yeah, but that was ages ago, and they're like, they still talk about that game, they still talk about okay. Dundee United being unbeaten to Barcelona. I think they played them a couple of times in the sixties as well. Maybe they've never yeah. been beaten. They've never been beaten by Barcelona, and I was just like, uh, I'm not going to impress. There was, do you remember that? Um, there was a training ground video where John Moncur is just getting lectured by Glenn Hoddle, going, "That's not how you do it. Give it here," and just he's yeah. putting the ball in the bottom corner, and John Moncur is just like shaking his head, going. All right, mate. And there was, and I had a couple of those sort of moments with Sturrock. I was like, there was no way I was going to impress a man that had bossed it in the new camp. But, um, but there we go. Listen, well, he, uh, Jen, he, go I was going to say he, he lost that. That lost Terry Venables' job, didn't it? Pretty much. So there you go. So there you go. Well, listen, let's come back. Uh, let's. There's a few more players in the modern era that I think definitely need uh, a look at. So let's come and have a chat about them after the break. If you want an e-bike that doesn't look like it's made for the shopping precinct, something that's less Mr Bean and more Steve McQueen, check out the range of bikes from London-based Cooler King. From dope 250-watt city bikes to Harley Bobber-inspired 750-watt beasts that can tear your face off while leaving your smile intact. Cooler Kings are made in limited numbers, yet highly affordable. Check them out now on the web at cooler.bike or find them on Instagram with hashtag CoolerKingBike. Cooler.bike. E-bikes that are cool AF. All right, guys, welcome back. Let's pick it up uh, for perhaps some more modern era players. We, we touched upon Spain, um, a, a player that, that had success in Spain, but perhaps was one of the more successful exports um, and one of the one of the best players of his generation, uh, David Beckham. Gareth, did you uh, did you have a little look at any of, of his track record abroad? Because obviously um, it, it's nothing short of impressive. It's, it's a funny one because exports almost the right word because it almost feels like a, a brilliant commercial tour of the biggest and best clubs in the world. I'm not sure how many players get to play for Manchester United, AC Milan, Paris Saint-Germain in this current iteration and, uh, and Real Madrid. It's, but I'm not entirely convinced how much he won after he left Manchester United. Um, did he win the league title with Real? Cause it was obviously a very troubled time. Um, with the you know the Galacticos, but they 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 fell short a number of times. Obviously, he never yeah you know, he never won the Champions League, which does feel like when you talk about benchmarks for British players playing abroad, that's always the one that seems to you know set players above you know all the other ones. You know when you look at you know, Steve McManaman, and conversely, you, know, you talk about another wide player who played some joy. I think is still the most successful British player to ever play his trader outside of the British Isles. Um, so he, he's one that's kind of fascinating. And obviously, you know, scored in uh, a European Cup final for Real Madrid as well, which is, you know, pretty good thing to to, to tell the kids. No, that's, yeah. that's very... Yeah. Sorry, go on, Gareth. Oh, sorry, go on, John. Sorry. No, no Beckham, Beckham's Real Madrid stay was, uh, was very interesting because it was in that Galacticos era, and I suppose he's a figure that, embodies that entire philosophy really because they brought him in 
having sold off Claude McAuley, um and actually getting rid of Steve McBannon as well, in, uh, and got rid of him to Manchester City. And they had a pretty fully functioning team there. It was, you know, uh, they've won the Champions League in uh, 98, 2000, 2002. Um, and then Beckham came in. And oddly enough, um, for the various coaches he worked for, and he worked for quite a few, uh, what, what do we think of David Beckham? We remember him on the right-hand side of midfield, working very hard, uh, crossing the ball. He didn't actually do that at Real Madrid. He played as a central midfielder and a very hard-working one. And I think he was a popular enough player amongst the Real Madrid fans, even though they, you know, he was embodied something of a decline in the club. But he actually won. Uh, he did actually win a league title, and that's in the final season. And this is classic Beckham, actually. Uh, and he, he sometimes forget about what he was like as a player or what he's like as a person. Uh, is that Fabio Capello was the manager? Uh, Fabio Capello. Really didn't fancy Beckham, uh, but Beckham's determination uh, forced his way back into the team, and he became key man in the winger title. Uh, and then he rode off into the sunset, um, or to another galaxy, in fact, the LA Galaxy. So, <laughs> you know, so yeah, he, he's uh, he, so yeah. You forget about that, and of course, he did that Beckham when he was just uh, 31, 32. Uh, to, to, to go to America and you know at the time everyone said okay that's the end of his career but yet he would come back to Europe for those cameos at AC Milan PSG and um, of course at PSG uh, he donated all these wages to a charity you know finally signed it signed off with uh, it was a children's charity signed off with you know some really good PR uh, but he never did get that knighthood <laughs> not yet anyway <laughs> um, if he delivers the World Cup to to England at some point with his PR uh, mastery, then that might be when he's due one. Um, well, he's, he's given that a good try a couple of times. Really it's not come good. off. Yeah, um, I, I would say you know in terms of you know this this later generation of, of uh, you know footballers playing their trade outside the UK, but you then you now have the joy of of YouTube for certain highlights, and there's one I think fairly famous clip you can find out which is this absolutely insane pinpoint ball you know very trademark back and ball from in deep which he just drops on the toe of the onrushing uh uh ronaldo the original ronaldo which yeah, yeah. is one of the most jaw-dropping things you will ever see um and you know going back a little bit i guess backtracking and uh, uh chris waddle um we spoke about this uh off pod earlier um in his first season at uh, Marseille, where uh, let it be remembered, he won the league title three three seasons in a row. There's this incredible goal he scores against the uh, Paris Saint Germain, where the ball comes in, he takes it down on the chest, then turns and dinks it over the onrushing keeper, who is Joel Batts. And yeah. then, as the ball drops down, he turns away from goal and then back kills it in for a couple <laughs> of yards, which is absolutely you know it's phenomenal and it's. Yeah, I'm not sure many footballers would would even consider trying that, especially these days. You know, the crucifixion you would get if you miss. Actually, it was. It reminded me. Did you see it? There's a clip that cropped up recently of Mario Balotelli playing for Man City in a friendly uh, in the United States. Yes, where he uh, he attempts to finish. He, he's through one on one. He attempts to finish by turning and, and, and knocking a ball from behind him past the keeper and he just you know slices it past the post and he just walks off without a care in the world. But um yeah, I mean so and you Chris Waddle was obviously he he's absolutely an icon of uh, uh of in, in Marseille and I guess slightly later on down the line one of the most fascinating uh uh exports was Tony Cascarino. Loved him. Absolutely loved. I loved his book. His book was really odd at yeah. the time because it had that kind of the. It was it was almost like Sir Irving Welsh esque. It had this kind of inner voice talking through it, where he's like kind of eating away at him, and he's just you know his confidence. You look at his mood, the way he played as a player. You know, maybe slightly like a poor man's Trevor Francis, but the same like a big strong striker. Played with Sheringham, like played for some great clubs. Um, Millwall and and like I, I was really impressive at Millwall, sorry, but when he moved on and, and did well, but then 
when he went there, it was almost like that voice just went, "Well, fuck it, you know what? What's let's just let's just see see how it goes." Yeah. And obviously, the the reason him signing was because that was it. Tappy, uh, the 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 chairman or whatever, just basically was like, "I." I want internationals, but we're in we're disgraced and we've been relegated. Yeah. Absolutely <laughs> so, financially straight. It's, like, it's like setting all your championship manager filters. Okay, so <laughs> we've got no money, but we want an international um and who's available and we're a shit team. Um, yeah. Cascarino we- dyes his hair, <laughs> flies to the south of France and becomes an icon. Yeah, yeah, that that that, that book was ghost written by uh Paul Kimmage, uh who's a Oh, yeah. he's, a, he's a great journalist and former Tour de France cyclist. Right. And yeah, yeah. I mean, the, 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 funnily enough, I've not read any Paul Kimmage before that that book, but um, it's written quite a lot in Paul Kimmage's voice. Uh, Paul Kimmage has a particularly keening tone, as I say. So he's always very readable. Um, when Cascarino went to Marseille, me and a good friend of mine used to have a joke about that because actually I had a Marseille shirt, the Panasonic one. And we used to oh, joke that was about the it. best. That's yeah, the best. Yeah. The yeah, cream yeah. of the crop. Yeah, I, I, I swapped it for some twelve inches with a mate. There you go. Uh, <laughs> and um, and uh, yeah, we used to joke about the, the sponsor was Panasonic, but by the time that Cascarino's there, it was sponsored by you know Pierre's Boulangerie because it was because <laughs> <laughs> they were a bit down on their luck by that point. But yeah. Um, I mean, I've met Tony Cascarino, a very nice chap. Uh, and, of course, you know, that book revealed quite a lot of his um, of himself. And actually, I suppose it set a tone for quite a few books after that. Um, yes. The football autobiography of the 80s and much of the 90s was a fairly dull um, read, wasn't it? It was usually only interesting at the back when they would pick the best team of players that they played alongside a lot of the time it was just pretty boring but Cascarino uh, and uh, another footballer actually called Gary Nelson who's a bit of a journeyman they, 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 brilliant yeah they rewrote the, on how a football you know so even the best players even someone like uh, I mean Wayne Rooney or possibly should he do another book you really have to give something of yourself away rather than just <laughs> you know Rather than just we won two nil, I scored, and the gaffer was nice, sort of thing, which is what previous books were like. John, I just wanted to interject here. I very much enjoy your um, cutting responses, or certainly highlighting of Premier League footballers that that roll out lazy post match tweets, <laughs> and you're like, "Here's another one." Uh, just literally one after another of like the boys done good, we won thanks to the fans. You were great. Uh, yeah, like me, it's the team. Yeah, and that's and that's pretty much and that is in the spirit of the nineteen eighties football autobiography, isn't it? You know, uh, who, who was who was the player that said uh, something like this and actually copied that onto his Twitter account? <laughs> that was uh, yeah, wasn't that? Um, oh, Anichebe was it Victor? Yeah, it? that's right. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, but that that that's pretty <laughs> much the that's pretty much the tone of of, of football autobiographies until. Uh, Gary Nelson and uh, Tony Cascarino rewrote How to Do It, or, or their ghostwriters did, I should say. I, I almost feel like there's a thread to be pulled on footballers sort of biographies, which we might be able to come back to. Um, yeah, yeah. We'll keep it on this one for now. Gareth, you make a great point about some of those Spurs players from years. I, I think a hallmark of them was the the quality of the player. So it wasn't just, you know, I mean, you look at players going now, and uh, undoubtedly Kieran Trippier, fantastic player, real good quality, bit of a surprise move to Atletico Madrid. But when you look at Glenn Hoddle and players that were just talked about in kind of hushed tones, probably across Europe, as like, this guy, this guy's different, you know, and has a certain ability. No, agreed. I mean, uh, these players, well, I, I think there was almost that sense of, they're too good for the English game, or they 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 stuck out like a sore thumb because yes. they didn't fit the archetype of what a an English league player was. Um, I think there was always that fanciful uh, question of you know who else could have done it abroad, and Matt Letizia is a name that comes up. I don't know whether that's because of the fact that he was he was born uh, in the Channel Islands and and has a a French surname. Um, <laughs> I think well actually wasn't Graham Lasso uh, asked oh. 
it was either Lasso or Letitia both were inquired whether they were eligible or would be interested in playing for France at a certain point. So I think it was when they were rebuilding their team in the early to mid-90s. Um, so, you know, it could have been a very different story for, for Letitia. But yeah, it was that kind of, you know, that sense of, well, of course they're playing, you know, people like, well, of course they're playing abroad. You know, they're basically foreign players in style. Um <laughs> I'd love to have seen Letizia play up front with Cantona. Maybe Ginola just whipping balls into them. That would have been that would have been something. It's uh, sorry, you won't be getting much work rate out of those three. Would you? <laughs> <laughs> and then, I love that. That's the that's that's the we're talking about flair and quality here, John. We're not we're not we're not talking about winning matches. We're just talking about <laughs> aesthetically pleasing. I mean, that's the Hoddle one. I think I, I love. I'm a big fan. I am a big fan of Glenn Hoddle. I wish I'd seen more of him, you know, in terms of a, as as a player rather than kind of the responses to him as a manager. Because he just th- that move to Monaco seemed like he was he was around because his goal scoring record as an attacking midfielder is pretty impressive. Well, seemed very impressive, and also played. I think did he play with George Ware and Mark? Was it Mark Haitley and George Ware up front? I mean, it's like a it's a champ manager team. This it's ridiculous that Monaco side and also managed by Arsene Wenger. Which yes, of really course. Um, and actually, speaking of uh, Monaco and Wenger and keeping my Spurs centric ways, is when uh, when Jurgen Klinsmann moved to uh, Spurs from Monaco. Part of the reason was he had a. Uh, Fallen out of love of the methods and tactics of Arsene Wenger, so the uh, the future Arsenal manager pushed the uh, pushed Klinsmann to his his, his soon to be rival club, which is a nice nice little bit of Alanis Morissette for you. Wow, the German Tony Cotty, as I call him, uh, Klinsmann. Well, you know, player he could have been, but there and, you go. Uh, I, I I guess it's you know we should probably give a quick nod to some of the illustrious players. It didn't quite work out. One obviously one of the, my favourite stories is. The debut of uh, Jonathan Woodgate for Real Madrid. So at, at time, Woodgate was seen as one of the most cultured defenders, you know, around certainly in the UK and maybe wider than that. And he had to wait some time for his debut because surprisingly he was injured. And uh, when he did uh, finally get on the pitch, uh, scored an own goal and was sent off, uh, which is quite quite something. Uh, and the fans apparently loved him. I think he then came back and scored in his next game. So, I mean, he knew, knew how to sort of engage with the fans. And, you know, one of the stranger ones, I think, a player that you know, many people thought it would work out and it really didn't at all was uh, Michael Owen, uh, also Real Madrid. I think he'll claim that he actually had a very strong scoring record there and his goals per minute, I think he was a substitute fair amount, was, was very good. But, you know, I guess as sort of characterised by most of his career post you know, that sort of 2000, 2002 period um, never quite caught fire in the same way that it did at the start. Yeah, and it's funny, actually, Michael Owen and Jonathan Woodgate had a very different attitude to life at Real Madrid, but both arrived at the club for pretty much the same reason, which was that uh, the, the power brokers at Real Madrid noticed that if you bought a decent English player for a cheapish price, you could probably sell him back to an, another English club for an even better price, which is exactly what happened uh, with both of them. Um, and But I, I remember actually seeing Jonathan Woodgate, because, yeah, he arrived there, got injured, um, <clears throat> and we didn't see much of him for a while. And then suddenly, uh, three months or so later, he's been interviewed on, on Sky or whatever, and he's grown his hair That's long, true. and he's got this, sort of the Alice band in, and yes. he's speaking Spanish, and... Uh, he just absolutely went for it. You know, he was suddenly looking like Jose Maria Gutierrez, where, whereas um, whereas Michael Owen, uh, you know, has admitted that he he lived um, in, a, in a hotel in Madrid and he had a car. And the only time he really used it, other than to go to training, was that he would drive to the airport and pick up the English newspapers uh, and then drive back and then read those. So it... it, it <laughs> I'm just, I love that. I love that. It's That's so bang on the money. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, a real prototype Gareth Bale. Um, <laughs> and uh, as she saw very quickly, so I, I was watching a, a couple of um, interviews. Now, there was a, a, a TV piece with a couple of pundits, which included 
uh, Joe Cole and Paul Ince, and they were, I think they were discussing Jaden Sancho at the time, and conversation got on to their experiences abroad, and uh, maybe speaks a little bit to the nature of the two players. So the the one that tickled me was uh, Joe Cole, who said, well, you know, late, later on in my career, I went and played abroad, uh, Cup because I went and played in France, and then you know, I went and played in the United States for two seasons. And, you know, absolutely incredible experiences, like really, like just so different. And it's like, okay, so firstly, he <laughs> plays for Lille, which is the closest city in France to the UK, <laughs> and I believe may have actually lived, you know, uh, either commuted on the Eurostar most days. Or uh, certainly live within stone's throw of the terminal. The Joe and Cole is from Camden, so that's exactly yeah. So he could pretty much <laughs> walk from the family home, get on the Eurostar, and be in Lille just and, in and, time yeah, for training. And then he said, "Yeah, and America, you know, incredible. You're just so different. You're just like it's not that different to London. So it's, but just the, his eyes opening, the idea of you know playing at a, a French football club." Uh, Roughly twenty six miles from the from uh, from Dover is 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 phenomenal. And then uh, Paul Ince, yeah, who who did well at at Inter and yeah. was sort of quite honest that you know he was sold on without you know not necessarily wanting to be sold on, but just gets the the, the call from Sir Alex. We've, we've accepted an offer of eight and a half million from Inter Milan, and um, yeah, he was saying that you know for the first month or so or longer his game was terrible and as soon as he sort of tried to really acclimate and learn some Italian and and it you know it got a lot better and it really does have an impact and then he comes out of the golden lines like but obviously you know with, with, with these these new players it's a lot easier to go to these you know now because they all speak English <laughs> it's just like, I, I don't think that's the point Paul he's like it'd be a lot easier for me if they all just spoke in English in the Latin but you know they spoke Italian um, so you know, again, I think maybe speaks a little bit as to you know the mindset of uh, of, of of Paul Ince, but yeah, definitely some interesting ones. We could we could come back and speak about a few of these players, as you said. The uh, Bale's a fascinating one. Um, Gaza, uh, you know, we haven't touched on Gaza. Wow, well, yeah. And John, uh, from your point, saying going north of the border, treating that like a foreign country. Well, I mean, crikey, that's you know that's the impact that he had on Scottish football, the impact that he had um, on football in general. But just uh, maybe we come back and uh, tidy up a few more of the players because I think it would be a nice one to pick up on um, next week. If we've got, um, yeah, I think there's a there's a good few we can go. I mean, we haven't touched on Gordon Cowens at Barry yet. And he is, I mean, that to me, that's, that's the one I want to dig. So deep. many. Tony Dorigo also in this uh, Des Walker. Um, yeah, oh, pa- so Paul good. Elliott as well was another player that made a decent career over there. Brand I mean, <laughs> I mean, okay, he's a, he's a, he's an Irishman, uh, but Liam Brady, who had been oh you know, wow, like, what a story! Uh, yeah. Arsenal's best player of the late seventies went to um, went into Milan, or no, I think he went to Juventus and ended up scoring the penalty that won them the title. That's right. Yeah, in his final game before with Trevor Francis and Graham Souness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, he he really made him you know a, a life for himself out there. Um, yeah, I think he he scored the penalty that that, that won the title for Juventus, and mm-hmm. they immediately replaced him with Michel Platini, which you know, right. uh, it's. I mean, I think even Liam Brady admits that Platini was maybe just a bit a cut, a cut above, but that that does a disservice to how good yeah. a player Liam Brady was. You're absolutely right, John. I was going to say that. I mean, we could we could say that, but B- Brady, you look at Brady, uh, players like Ray Wilkins as well, Ray Wilkins at Milan. and Fantastic. Just class acts. Bliss Yeah, Luther Bliss. But Luther Bliss, it was an interesting, I mean, there's a, you know, there's, there's stories there that's kind of, uh, you, you almost feel Ray Wilkins. The thing I loved as well was, um, you know, obviously Football Italia was a big influence on us kind of getting a glimpse into that. And the personality that it showed for Paul Ince, because James Richardson had somehow eked out this. I, I've never, I don't think I'd ever seen him smiling and laughing, you know, and it was just like brilliant to see him have a little bit of repartee with him. You get Liam Brady in doing the team talk. You get uh, Joe Jordan, I believe, was again yeah, another yeah. one. Uh, Paul get, Elliott was the regular fixture. Paul Elliott, that's yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, he's an excelic, you know, big, big guy that was, you know, just, just kind of a, a, a never present on the show, but um, a lot of just. 
getting a glimpse into another life. I, I always felt that the Italian football was always uh, lofted as uh, lauded as as a uh, something so much better and you know the fact that it, it, you know the players that they signed and the players that the, the power that they had to bring them in no I, I don't think at, at any point in football history has a league been as full of talent or as strong as Syria in that late 80s early 90s period really I mean Italian clubs kept winning Champions League and so on for about 10 years after or so um but yeah, I, 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 I mean, just the strength of that league and the fact that they had the money, um, and they'd actually done this ahead of this in the early sixties as well when Jimmy Greaves and Dennis Law went there. But, but by that point when the foreigners' uh, laws were were lifted, they just took all the world's best players and, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the Premier League hypes itself ridiculously. We know that, and uh, Spain has always had Real Madrid and Barcelona, but. Nothing comes close to the depth of that, if that of Syria in that era. Nothing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, listen, gents, uh, uh, thanks for joining me this evening, uh, and always a pleasure. Uh, what are you guys up to? John, are you working at the minute? You doing bits and bobs? Yeah, bits and bobs. Been busy the last few days. Uh, I'll be talking to my friend Paul Ross later on Talk Sport over the continuing uh, the changing of the rules of football to get it started again. Um, and uh, yeah, just just um, well, sitting and waiting like everybody else, I would say. All right. Well, uh, hopefully we'll have you back on here soon enough with us, uh, Gareth. Uh, I, I hear you think I think's busy in the music world. It's business as usual. If if yeah, it can be anything, anything as such. picking up a bit. I think people have decided it's time to stop waiting around. They're going to start making some music and start making some plans. Live music isn't really on the agenda, but. You know, obviously, there, there's a million ways to put music out into the world. So, yeah, it's it's going to be fun. Good. All right. Well, listen, guys, uh, thanks for joining and in, in, in your input tonight. That was good fun. Uh, hopefully, we'll catch you again uh, very soon. We might might look at a few more of the ones we missed next week. But um, thanks for joining me. And uh, that was The Whistleblowers. Wasn't that a great podcast? Now, if you've got 90 seconds spare in your day, come and listen to ours. It's called What Has He Said Now? and is available wherever you got this podcast. You're going to lose a number of people to the flu. This is a Playback Media production. To listen to all our football podcasts, visit playbackmedia.co.uk. Sports Social Podcast Network.